All right, let's have a word of prayer. Let's get going. Oh, Lord God, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. You are the creator of the wind and the rain and the sun. You are the creator of this place as our home, and you are the one who placed us here to live here, to flourish here, to enjoy you and all of your blessings here. We enjoy the blessing of these things as well as the beauty of gathering together in friendship and fellowship now, because indeed we are the family that you have called together. A family not by blood, but a family by faith, a family that you have created to learn your ways in the world and to show those ways to the world so that we can all learn more about how to live loving and fruitful and productive lives. As we open your word to us, we think of the generations who have come before, who have studied the same word, who have been inspired and corrected by it. We think of the generations before who have brought us to this time and place, and we ask that you would inspire us so that we can live faithfully in our time and pass on these truths to future generations. We remember these things now as we gather, certain of your presence with us, certain of your desire to bless us, certain of our need to be blessed, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, we are finished with Micah. Everybody happy about that? It's okay? Good. Micah's one of those great books of the Bible that you can study in just a few weeks, and now you can say you have completed a study of the entire book of Micah, okay? Say that especially to your friends who do not know how short the book is, okay? <laughs> We're coming back, of course, to one of the 66 books in the Bible that is considerably longer, considerably more material to study the gospel according to Luke. We took the first portion of Luke, the first 10 chapters last fall, and uh, then we moved away from that for a while uh, because I think it helps to refresh kind of our interest in the book, if you will. And so now we're going to come back and we will be blitzing our way through the rest of the gospel according to Luke as we finish off uh, this season of study. We'll be essentially be finished with this uh, by the end of April. And then we'll have a, a celebration. We'll have our traditional lady spring luncheon. I believe it's the first Wednesday in May. So you can be thinking about that. But let's, as we get back into Luke, let's sort of remember where we are, right? This is kind of like watching a season's worth of Downton Abbey or uh, Outlander or something like that, right? And, and you've forgotten half of the story and they need to show you little bits and snippets so you remember where you are in the story. Well, let's do that with the gospel according to Luke. We remember that... Luke was, by tradition, a physician from the city of Troas, and now in uh, modern-day Turkey, and that Luke had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he uh, was a careful student, and he wanted to create a, a report, uh, a witness, if you will, a testimony to the truth about Jesus Christ. And so, as he begins the gospel, he writes to Theophilus, dear Theophilus, maybe a person named Theophilus, a lover of God, or maybe a, a general kind of Theophilus, anyone who loves God. If you love God, here is what you need to know about the life and the times, the message and the meaning, the importance of this Jesus from Nazareth, now proclaimed to be 
the Messiah, the Christ of God. That's who Luke is writing for. And of course, we noted that Luke writes this story. We're in the middle of the story of Jesus' life. But he then also continues the story as he writes the book of the Acts of the Apostles to tell us what happened after Jesus was gone and after the Holy Spirit continued to move in the life of the people to create the church and to share the message. In a sense, the gospel according to Luke is about the movement of the Holy Spirit. You could look at it that way. Luke is telling us that God is moving. God is doing something. And when God is actually doing something out of the ordinary, so to speak, right? God is always involved. God is always active. But now God is doing something very special. We want to pay attention. And Luke wants us to pay attention to what is happening. And so the Holy Spirit has been at work. The Holy Spirit has brought Jesus to us. Jesus is, of course, one and the same as the Holy Spirit. Not exactly the same, but one in being as part of the Trinity of God. But here we now have God at work uh, through the power of the Spirit in the person, the human person of Jesus. It's helpful for us to remember all that because every time we read a little piece of Luke, we need to remember what the big story is, right? You need to remember where you are in the story. And so Luke has already told us about Jesus' birth, a little bit about his childhood, and especially now about his adult ministry. And as we move into chapter 11 today, we're going to hear more about the substance, more about the, the meat of what that adult ministry was all about, the message of Jesus, the response that Jesus received uh, as we continue to get to know Jesus. So we have actually quite a lot of text, but it's going to be important to have that text in our minds and to draw some lessons. Lessons from that. So Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, that's what we'll look at right now. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Okay, let's take this apart. Jesus was praying in a certain place. We could actually spend the rest of our time together just talking about that. The disciples observed 
what Jesus did every second, everything that Jesus did was under a microscope. And they observed that Jesus often went away by himself to talk with God. Some people will say, well, Jesus was God. Was he talking to himself? <laughs> Good question to ask, but it goes to a place that doesn't take us anywhere. As a human being, Jesus often spoke with God in prayer. He listened to God, he talked to God, he did something in prayer that the disciples rightly apprehended, they rightly understood that that was an important piece of Jesus's life. And they wanted to know about it. They wanted to know about it. Jesus modeled for us a style of life, an approach to life, that we need to pay attention to because Jesus was connected to God in a deeply intimate way, not just because he was God, but because he was a human being who knew how to be connected with God and prayer was a part of that. Now, of course, the disciples knew about prayer. They knew that you were supposed to pray. They knew that there were great prayers in their own history, their own faith, especially as expressed in the Psalms. They knew all that stuff. They also knew that John, the baptizer, Jesus's cousin, had taught his disciples about prayer. And now they wanted to learn about prayer from Jesus. Remember that we are disciples. That's who we say we are. Or we're thinking about becoming disciples, perhaps. Or we're wanting to learn how to be better disciples, more successful disciples. And so we can learn from prayer. And so Jesus says, okay, well, here's the way I pray. And then he gives us what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Or if you come from a Roman Catholic tradition, the Our Father, right? That's what you call it in the Roman Catholic tradition. So what is that prayer? Again, we could spend, we could spend the next 10 weeks taking apart the Lord's Prayer. We won't spend all of that time with it today. But notice these characteristics about the prayer. Jesus begins by saying, Our Father, not my Father, God does not belong just to you. Every once in a while you talk to somebody who it seems like they think God is there only for them, right? God is there for all of us. We are part of a family. This is our father. This is not our father in a very formalized sense. This is daddy, right? You've heard this before. Jesus uses the, the, the word baba, which is really more like daddy. It's a very familiar, very intimate, very affectionate term. It's a, almost a pet term, if you will, for father. Jesus comes as a human being to the creator of everything, the mind, the power, the will that, that made everything exist. That's a pretty big dude. That's a pretty important create, uh, creator. Uh, uh, an, I wanted to say a, an important person, but God's not a person. This is God. Jesus comes to God himself, and instead of saying, Father, he says, hey, Pops. That's kind of the impact of this, right? Hey, Pops. And then he begins to tell him, hey, you know, I'm worshiping you. Hallowed be your name. You are God, right? You are God. I want your kingdom here with me in this world. I want it for everybody in the world. We need, we need what we need today. God, we know it all comes from you. Give us what we need. We need to be forgiven of our sin. We know you love us and you will forgive our sin. And by the way, we also know that if we ask for forgiveness for our sin, that the only thing that we can do with that is then to turn around and forgive the sin of others. And as we forgive everyone's sin, God, please keep us away from temptation. 
We realize that every single moment of life we're tempted to, to stray away from you and to go away from the source of life that you are, and we need you to help keep us on that pathway of following you. Keep us from temptation, keep us from trial, protect us from the evil that's out there in the world, the evil that tempts us inside of our own hearts, and then help us to live in the way that you would have us live. Now, in this rendering of the text, we don't have that little piece that is ended. Uh, in other parts uh, of, of the, the, uh, the gospel reports of this prayer, um, the, the power and the glory be yours forever, right? That's the prayer. It's a pretty simple little prayer. It is the prayer that Jesus gave to us as the model prayer. And then he comments about what prayer is actually supposed to be. He comments by telling a couple of stories. And it seems like those stories don't necessarily go with the business of prayer, right? He goes into this conversation, let's say that you need some food and you go to your friend's house at midnight and you knock on the door and say, I need some food and your friend says, no, go away. It's late, you're too late, come back in the morning. If you keep knocking, your friend will eventually get up and not be very happy with you, but eventually they'll give you some food. He talks about that. Then he talks about a, a, a child asking a parent for some food. If your kid asks you for some fish, right? Are you gonna give him a snake? If he asks you for an egg, are you gonna give him a scorpion? The child needs food. What is a good parent going to do? You're gonna pop him in the car and go get a Happy Meal. That's what you're going to do, right? What do those two stories, a, a, a friend asking another friend for food or a child asking a parent for food, what do those two stories have to do with the Lord's Prayer? You think about that? It's a very simple thing. By the way, it's pouring rain out there again. God is giving us some rain. Dear God, give us the rain that we need today, right? Okay, Jesus wants us to understand this aspect of prayer. Prayer is not about coming to God and saying, God, I know I'm supposed to talk to you, so let me just log in a couple of minutes here. Will you please you know, count that to the good side of the ledger? That's not what prayer is. Prayer is a child coming to a loving parent. Prayer is a friend coming to another friend, asking for something that we need. And God is that loving parent, that loving friend who wants to give us what we need. That is, in many ways, the heart of prayer. It's not the only thing in prayer, but it's a very important thing in prayer. What Jesus was saying to the disciples is when he prayed to God, he was receiving something from God. Not just his own laundry list. The, the Lord's Prayer is not a laundry list of things that Jesus wants. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus didn't say to the disciples, when you come to God in prayer, say, God, I would like to have a newer chariot. God, I would like to have a bigger house. God, I would like to be more popular with my friends. Whatever it is, right? We think of all kinds of things that we want in prayer. The first thing that Jesus asks for in prayer is not asking for something, but acknowledging something. God, you're my dad. You're the loving parent. And I want things to be in this world the way you want them to be in the world because you know better than I know how they should be in the world. By the way, I want your will to be done. Prayer, when, when we come to God asking for what we want, the first thing we have to recognize is that we need to want what God wants. 
and it recognizes that God is God. Now, what God wants is to care for us, to feed us, if you will, and give us what we need to get through the day. Not what we want, not what we think we need, not what we think everybody else needs necessarily, but to give us the deepest things that we need to live and to thrive. That's part of what prayer is. Another part of what prayer is, is acknowledging that we don't have what it takes to get through the day. Only God has what it takes. Lead us away from temptation, God. We need to stay close to God. God is the source of life. We cannot ever overestimate or overstate this, this reality that Jesus lived from out of, the reality that God was present to him in every moment. And part of that presence was reinforced and remembered, and Jesus made himself available to that. He opened himself to it. He connected himself to it in prayer. That's what we do in prayer. A lot of people live life, most people live life, without ever really thinking much about the God who is there with them in every single moment. And especially people who have never given God very much time, they don't know much of anything about God or the power that's available to God. And when life knocks them upside the head, they come to me and say, what in the world do I do? And then I have to begin to teach them about how to have a present relationship with God from which they are going to receive all the things that they need to deal with whatever it is that life has dealt to them. That's what prayer is. It's just like a parent giving a child a fish and an egg, not a snake and a scorpion. That's not who God is. God isn't going to play with you. God isn't going to say, come pray to me, pray to me, ask me for everything that you want, tell me everything that you need, and then I will laugh in your face and watch you squirm and watch you grovel. Right? A lot of people come to God and say, God, I know I don't deserve anything, so I don't really expect to get anything from you. And in their hearts, they believe they're not going to get anything from God. That's why we ask for forgiveness. God, we know you forgive us and love us, and you're going to give us what we need today. See, all of those things are going on in prayer. That's that, that aspect of God being the loving God who wants to give us what we most need. Jesus emphasizes that as he tells those two stories after he teaches the disciples about prayer. So here we have a, a nugget, uh, a really big nugget, a really important nugget uh, about what Jesus was actually doing in the world, right? We say Jesus was about the business of saving the world. Well, part of that saving of the world was in teaching us about the fact that God is present to us. God is available to us. All we have to do is turn to God and say, here I am, God. God is not out there somewhere where we can't reach God. God has come here to be with us. God is not sitting there saying, well, I'll pay attention to you when I want to pay attention to you, or I'll give you what I want if you've been good. There are all kinds of misconceptions about who this God is. No, when you turn to God and say, Daddy, I need you, He's right there. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Let's keep on going. Verses 14 through 28. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. 
But he knew what they were thinking and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert and house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out the demons by Beelzebul. Now if I cast out the demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place, but not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and live there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. While he was saying this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Okay, this is a whole lot of stuff. One thought piled on top of another thought, but there is a unifying thought to all of this, and that's what we're looking for. Sometimes it's very helpful when you're studying the scriptures, by the way, to look at how ancient folks and how the church in its wisdom has clustered and grouped things together, right? This is all in chapter 11. We could have picked any point at which to end chapter 10 and start chapter 11 or start chapter 12. And so when you see a chapter, you need to ask the question, why was this stuff put together? And in this case, this stuff was put together in this way. Jesus is teaching us about the reality, the nature, the characteristics of, of what it means when God is present in the world in him and how we are present to God in the world and what God is doing in the world. Okay, that first section we just read from chapter 11 tells us how we have God available to us and God is there, uh, but God wants to give us what we need to get along in the world. And God is the only true source of those things. Now Jesus moves into another topic, if you will. And it has to do with the topic of God's power overcoming the power of evil. Over how in Jesus and in the movement of the Spirit and in the way that Jesus lives, we see how people are moving away from death, from hatred, from dysfunction, from unsuccessful life all ways that I would describe the effect of evil in the world, we're moving away from that and moving into the blessing of the presence of God. And the presence of God is stronger than evil, right? That is proclaimed in this first little portion of this section. Uh, there's a man who's possessed with a demon. He is given over to evil. I would time, we have talked a lot and we don't have time to describe in detail all the different questions that we have about evil or the devil, right? The Bible clearly understands that there is a power or a force or a spiritual reality in the world, in, in the creation, that is opposed to God. It is not of God. It's the opposite of God. 
Many people would say it is the absence of God. Where we choose to kick God out, then God is not there and the result is not good. It's evil. It's bad for us and it's bad for everything. So here is a person who in some way, shape or form is, is given over to the power of evil, who does not have the power of God in his life, and it's represented in this person not being able to speak, and Jesus casts out that demon. And some people say, wow, you must have the power of the devil. You must be the chief devil because you have just told one of your uh, subordinates to get out. And Jesus said, that makes no sense whatsoever. That's actually part of the manifestation of evil in the world, isn't it? Evil wants you to believe that evil is good. Have you ever noticed that? The most evil things in the world are those things where we try, people try to convince us or the world tries to convince us that something is good when it's actually really bad. If someone walks up and says, you know, I'm the devil and I'm going to destroy your life and everything's going to be hell, but you need to follow me. Would you follow that person? Would you follow that devil? Of course not. What does the devil do? The devil walks up and says, I'm gonna give you everything you want. You're going to have it all exactly the way you want it. It's going to be magnificent. The devil tries to convince you that evil is actually good. Well, that's part of what's going on here. Some people were saying, oh, oh, Jesus has the power of, of, of the devil. He's casting out other devils. Jesus says, no, 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 you're trying to convince people that something that's good is bad. When, and that, that's what evil tries to do. It tries to convince us that the good things are bad and the bad things are good. It flips everything over on its head, but some people actually give in to that lie. We all are tempted to do that. And then Jesus points out the fact that that would be ridiculous. That would be like a kingdom divided against itself. The devil's not going to work against himself. By implication, then, what you're seeing at work here is the power of good, the power of God working in a person's life, working in the world. And it's casting the devil out. It's casting evil out. It's replacing evil with good. Jesus brings up the image of a strong man, fully armed, guarding his castle. He thinks everything is safe, but it's not safe if something stronger comes in. And by implication, then the stronger thing that has happened, the stronger person, if you will, the stronger warrior in this case, who has come into the world is Jesus. He's stronger than the devil. He will always win against the devil. Good will always defeat evil. And that's what Jesus is doing in the world. Jesus talks about the fact that, that uh, if you're with me, you're with me. If you're not against me, you're with me. He's talking about the fact that, that any, any force that's actually creating good in the world is of God whether it even knows it's of God or not. Anything that's good is of God, right? And God must come in to replace that which is evil. That little phrase, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place, but not finding any, says, I'll go back to the house from which I came and comes back in. Jesus is saying that this, this battle of good against evil is a continual battle in this life. We can never say, yep, I, you know, when I was 11 years old, I signed a card that said, I believe in Jesus, so I'm golden. Everything is good. No. Every moment 
is a, is, a, is a challenge and a struggle and a question. Every moment is, a, is an opportunity either to let evil in, which means kicking God out, or to kick evil out, which means letting God in. And if you choose to let God in, God is always going to win that battle. But we have to make that choice in some sense. That's part of the dynamics that's being discussed here. So here's a proclamation of the fact that in Jesus, what we read about Jesus, the words of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the ultimate action of Jesus on the cross and in the grave is about the business of good beating bad, of God beating the devil, of the goodness and blessing that God intended at creation, filling our lives and in the process of filling our lives, casting out that which destroys our lives. That's what was happening in Jesus. And so you and I need to ask the question, okay, am I allowing that to happen in my life? Am I allowing God to fill my life? There's an interesting dynamic. When you want something to be present in your life, you have to invite it in. When you want something to leave your life, you don't just say, get away. You have to replace it with something else. It's like food, okay? This is probably a terrible example and it strikes to the very heart of my being, but at nighttime when it's 10.30 and you're sitting down to watch the evening news, you have a choice to make whether you're going to have a big heaping bowl full of delicious vanilla ice cream or you're gonna have a piece of fruit, right? You can't just say, I'm not going to have the ice cream. That would be like trying to cast the evil out. You say, instead of the ice cream, I'm going to have fruit. You replace it, you see what I'm saying? It's like when you're trying to not think about something, right? Have you ever tried to not think about something? You can't not think about something. In order to not think about one thing, you have to begin thinking about something else. That's the dynamic here. So we allow God in, we allow Jesus in, we allow the good in, and seek for that good, ask for that good in the prayer that Jesus taught us, and then the good will always win. Now, some people were listening, some people were paying attention. We have that interesting little phrase uh, from uh, 27. A woman raises a voice and says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. Here's a woman who believes, who gets it. Some of the people got it. Some of the people saw in Jesus and saw in his words the wisdom that he was sharing with them. And then Jesus turns around and says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Those are the people who actually are blessed by God, the ones who hear it and obey it. Okay, let's keep on going. I know there's a lot of stuff here, but you're gonna get it all sorted out in your small groups. Verse 29 through 36. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. 
If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but if it's not healthy, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, consider whether the light in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be as full of light as when a lamp gives you light with its rays. Okay, these things seem a little bit disjointed, don't they? But there is something that pulls them together, and this is why Luke put them all together, why Jesus maybe spoke of them all together. Here's this one woman who has said, Jesus, I get it, you're wonderful, I agree, I believe even. And then Jesus says, as the crowds are increasing, well, I know that all of you are looking for a sign. You're looking for some kind of proof that I am who I say I am, some kind of proof that what I'm teaching you about God and about yourselves is actually the truth and something worth following. And Jesus says, that's an evil thing to ask for a sign. Why does he say that? Well, he says that because God gives us signs all the time and we still don't listen, we still don't see, we still don't pay attention. And so Jesus goes back into the Bible, the Bible that the Jews of the first century knew. And he reminds them of a few things from their own history that are spoken of in the scriptures, where there was a sign from God, but they still don't believe, where there was a revelation from God, but they still don't believe. He talks about Jonah, right? Jonah refused to do what God wanted him to do, so God stuck him in a fish for a while and then spit him back out and said, okay, now go do what you're supposed to do. And Jonah reluctantly goes to Nineveh. And Jonah says to Nineveh, you need to repent. And the people say, okay, you're right. And Jonah didn't expect them to say that. Jonah was disappointed. Jonah expected God to destroy Nineveh. That's what he wanted to happen, but God didn't want to destroy Nineveh. God wanted to save Nineveh. And so Nineveh repented. Right there is, is a sign if you will, a, a story that reveals God's truth. God wants people to repent and turn to him and people actually do that sometimes, like in the days of Jonah and Nineveh. Then he talks about the queen of the south who, who came to Solomon, right? Solomon, uh, as the King David's son, Solomon inherited uh, a rich, powerful, successful nation, and he kept it going. It became even richer. It became even more powerful. People were drawn to Solomon because of his wisdom, because of his capability in leading the people of Israel. He said, look, people came to Solomon and they learned about God in the world. You know, by tradition, it's Solomon who wrote uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of Solomon. Very wise. He said, right there, you had the revelation of God. You had God speaking his message to the world. You've got Solomon. You've got his words to teach you about God in the world. Right? And, and, and then he talks about all the, all the other prophets, right? All the other prophets who've come before God but people don't pay attention to the prophets. And so he says, the people of Nineveh will rise up, the people of the south will rise up against you because they got it, but you're not getting it. God has already given you these signs, this truth, but you're not getting it. You're not seeing the light. Your eyes are not healthy. You're blind. You're not seeing the truth that is in me there. So open your eyes to the light of God that is present in the world. It's already been revealed to you in so many different ways. And now yet again, once again, even more so in Jesus, God is speaking. 
Jesus' message is clear enough to people, right? People ask me all the time, say, what does God want me to do with my life? What does God want me to do with the world? And, and God's already told us what he wants us to do with our lives. He's already told us what he wants us to do with the world. Some of the details are maddening, of course. How do I do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God? How do I love God with all of my very being? How do I love my neighbor? Working out the details God leaves up to us. But the broad description of what God wants for your life is already there if we will see it. Let's continue on, verses 37 to 52. You still with me? You hanging on? This is a quick and fast ride through a lot of stuff. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him, so he went in and took his place at the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So give for alms those things that are within, and see, everything will be clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without realizing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And he said, Woe also to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that this generation may be charged with the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here too. What is the thought? What is the central message that brings it all together? Well, here Jesus is speaking to those who are deepest and most tightly tied in to the heart of the faith of the Jews. They are the most religious the most serious, the most involved with Jewish faith. In a sense, they're having a family conversation. And he's saying to these folks who should have known the most about God, who should have understood the most, who should have followed God the most closely, the most successfully, he's telling them about where they have gone wrong. He talks about the Pharisees who invite him to dinner. Great. Pharisees like to get together and have dinner. They invited to Jesus to have dinner. That's where you can have some really heart-to-heart -heart conversations. And Jesus points out the fact to the Pharisees that they're very fastidious and meticulous in their observance of cleanliness laws about external things, but not about internal things. That's what that conversation is all about. 
He talks about the fact that they, they will tithe to God. Tithing is a good thing. Give to God what you owe to God. And they will tithe the mint and the rue and the herbs, the tiny little things. We're going to be sure to give God a little bit of that. But the big things, they don't give to God. They don't, they don't give to God the justice that is owed to God in relationships with other people. They don't give to God and to other people the mercy that other people need to have in their lives, the love that they need to have. By the way, quick excursus, quick commercial break. Mint. You know, we have started a Bible garden here. The first piece of that Bible garden that's been completed and finished is over at the entrance to the fellowship center. Here Jesus refers to mint, and we have some mint planted over there, okay? So go over to the fellowship center and look at where the mint is. It's all labeled and everything. Say, Jesus was talking about this plant. Isn't that cool? I think that's very cool. Okay, end of commercial message, but cool stuff. Let's go back, right? Jesus is saying, woe to you Pharisees. You like honor. You want to be first in line for everything. You want to be front and center. For, you want to be praised. You're, you're so self-centered. You're so narcissistic. It's beyond belief. He said, is that what faith in God is all about? No. He said, it's like people are walking over unmarked graves. What is that about? A grave, in, in, the, in the ancient Hebrew way of thinking about it, a place where a body is, is an unclean place. You don't touch a body, you put a body into the ground as quick as you can, get rid of it, right? The Pharisees are like bodies that are hanging around and nobody knows that they're unclean. Nobody knows that they're filthy because they have been hidden. They've been, in, in other places, Jesus talks about whitewashing the tombs. On the outside, the Pharisees appear to be the most religious, but they're the least religious in the true sense of religion of actually doing what God wants them to do. And then Jesus takes on the lawyers. Now, let's be very careful to understand when Jesus is talking about lawyers here, he's talking about those who specialize in studying and knowing the law of God, the commandments, and all the things that flow out of the commandments. They are meant to interpret to the people and to help the people follow God's true law. But he says, you don't actually do that. You make the law a burden rather than a joy. You make the law something that people are going to be judged against and judged unworthy of and therefore condemned rather than helping people understand that the law is God's good gift to us to, to realize how it is that we are meant to live in the world. You've turned the law into something that induces only guilt and shame and further dysfunction, not something that helps the people live successfully. That's what the law is all about. And then he talks about the prophets and the apostles here. Jesus has said, essentially saying, everything that you need to know about God, you've already been taught. It's all there, but you're getting it all wrong. So woe to you. You have taken away what he says is the key of knowledge, verse 52. You don't go into the kingdom of God. You don't live in the blessed presence of God in your lives. And you don't let others do it because you, you teach them something that's wrong. You model something that's wrong. You have not showed them the true way to have God in their lives. And of course, it is Jesus who is that true way. So let's keep on going so that we finish here. This last section, get my page turned. Luke 11, starting with verse 53. 
and then we'll finish with the first verse of chapter 12. When Jesus went outside, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile toward him and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Meanwhile, when the crowd gathered by the thousands so that they trampled on one another, he began to speak first to his disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, that is, their hypocrisy. This is kind of a transitional section here where Luke says, you know, this teaching of Jesus, the things that we have just learned that Jesus was teaching, that Jesus was doing, that he was modeling, people came by the thousands they sensed they knew, they realized that there was something authentic here. There was something truly of God here. And they wanted it. But those who were supposed to know what was authentic, what was truly of God, were resisting it. And they were fighting Jesus because of it. And so he warns the disciples again, and all of his disciples, saying, be careful what you're learning and from whom you are learning it and test it against the true wisdom of God and knowledge of God because it's going to get you into trouble. He, and he calls out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Not because the Pharisees aren't serious about God, not because they're not trying to follow God, but they're blind to the actual truth and to the actual way of life that God would have us learn. Okay, this is kind of like starting in the middle of the story, and we're still in the middle of the story. So we have to keep on going with the story next week. But are there a couple of thoughts or questions? We only have a couple of minutes. Anything anybody want to ask about in particular or comment about in particular? Let me encourage you to go back. If, I know there's been a ton of material. Uh, go back through the notes and read each section again, and you'll see how it holds together a little bit better, okay? All right, let's pray. God, thanks for being with us. Help us to learn from Jesus. Help us to learn from his example, from his words, from those who actually manifest Christ-likeness in the world, who actually are living justly and walking humbly and, and being kind and merciful and loving you and loving others. We pray that in his name. Amen. God bless. See you next week.